a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Many experts agree that our federal poverty guidelines are old-fashioned and antiquated and need a little bit of a retool and a reboot, but fixing them is uh, not so easy as most things in Washington are not on the federal level. Many disagree how things should be changed. Uh, Lois Collins, our uh, great insight source in the Deseret News, who's been following these kinds of uh, issues uh, in a way that is uh, both powerful and meaningful, uh, has a great piece on uh, Deseret.com this week. Uh, about what the experts agree on, what they disagree on, and uh, what the possible path is uh, moving forward. Lois, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Boyd. Uh, So let's take a look at this. Uh, Explain to us exactly what are the federal poverty guidelines, what are the methods, and uh, why is everyone kind of wringing their hands that maybe it's time for change? So there are two basic measures. The official poverty measure was designed in 19—it was adopted, I should say, in 1969— And it was based on a very simple meal budget taken from 1963 and then multiplied by three. And over the years, since 1969, it has been adjusted only for inflation. And it's the same in every state, regardless of the cost of living, except Alaska and Hawaii, which had carve-outs because they are more expensive. Um, But otherwise, it's pretty flat and only adjusted for inflation. And the other one is the supplemental poverty measure, which was put together during Obama's term um, by the Office of Management and Budget. And it took into consideration income, but also non-cash benefits like tax, like tax cuts, tax credits, that kind of thing, to kind of try to get a little bit more robust picture of what poverty is. And the problem is that everybody agrees that neither measure or the two taken together work quite right. Um, but some think that it's too high, some think that it's too low, and there are quite a bit of political thinking that goes into that on both sides. I, I, so I can't, ima- I can't imagine where that. you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, kind of hard to believe. <laughs> I know one of the people that you spoke with uh, for your uh, piece was Scott Winship, uh, who is at AEI, uh, was formerly at the uh, Joint Economic Committee in the Social Capital Project. And he seemed he, he's always criticized the uh, the way we measure uh, a lot of these things around poverty He's, and he, his claim is that we don't get the right information, so it's hard to tell if our poverty programs are actually helping get people out of po- poverty and onto that upward mobility path. Well, one of the most interesting things that he said, and I had never thought of it this way, was that it really doesn't matter where you set the line because you can then adjust, mm. like programs will say 200% of poverty or 400% of poverty or whatever. But you have to have a baseline that's real and that allows you to look 
forward and back and see if you're actually making a difference in people's lives and if you're actually if things are getting better or not. And that's not really easy to measure under the current system. Yeah. And and so what uh, I, I know there's obviously a wide range of uh, potential solutions or feelings about what those solutions should look like. Uh, anything stand out to you in terms of, hey, here's here's something that we really ought to think, at least think about thinking about when it comes to addressing poverty? So the thing that's so interesting to me is that in this particular issue, we're not seeing a lot of solutions. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of criticisms on how it's done and what it does or doesn't show. So we're seeing, you know, I mean, the solution ultimately would be to figure it out so that you could adjust it correctly. Right. But we're seeing people arguing um, on one side that you could not possibly live on on what is considered a poverty, just above poverty level income. So, for instance, last year a family of four making $25,750 or less was considered poor. And if you spent more, no more than a, a, you know, a third of your income on rent, that means that your rent could not cost more than $643, which good luck finding that. Yeah, for a family um, of four. And <laughs> in, in a time when the median income was about 68703 And you got to remember that that means that there are a whole bunch of people who are way rich and a whole bunch of people who are way poorer than that line. So they're arguing on both sides, but at the same time, um, there's an argument that people get a lot of help that is not necessarily accounted for or that they don't mention. Right. And so there has to be a more realistic way to measure what people actually have. And some people are saying, okay, so you take kind of a commodity approach and you look at what they're actually buying to see how much money they have. Mm. But that's complicated, too. Yeah. And so it's hard to come up with something that works, and some people probably underreport, and some people probably don't. And you can't. It's like everything else. Whenever you try to say everybody does this or nobody does this, you're wrong. Yeah, that uh, that makes it especially difficult. And uh, if you're just joining us, we've got Lois Collins on the line. We're talking about poverty, how we how we measure it. Uh, are we measuring the right things to determine it? And more importantly, are we creating paths for uh, for people to move forward and to have that upward mobility and opportunity? Uh, I know one of the things that uh, always frustrated me when I was in Washington was with many of the government programs, again, hard to measure where everybody falls and what everyone uses, uh, but this idea of, of the benefit cliff. So someone may be getting some of those benefits, but if they make a, you know, a few dollars over that, uh, suddenly their life unravels because some of the assistance they had been receiving suddenly evaporates overnight. Well, and it's it's also a story then of haves and have-nots. If the if the poverty mm-hmm. guideline is 25750 and you make 25751 what happens to you? Yeah. So there's it's just, it's really hard. I mean, I, I hate to see something like this so politicized because I think most people care about helping people in a way that lets them build a path for themselves so that they can climb out of poverty and and have good lives and it's there's there's a lot of blaming that goes on there's a lot of the worthy poor question and you know it's really hard to tell why people are in the situation they're in but there has to be some way that we can quantify help and whether it's working or not and we can incentivize helping families to do better themselves. Yeah, and I think that's the the real key is how do we actually do that? And I, I think one of the things that government has done very poorly in all of that politicizing of poverty uh, is that we really need to have uh, the ability to do the real accounting so we can 
make sure we're getting rid of waste, fraud, and abuse in the system. And then more importantly, that we can actually assess outcomes and say, are we actually winning the war on poverty or are we just giving people just enough to stay exactly where they are? And and to me, that uh, that has to be the ultimate test. I'm not sure how you, exactly you get to that, but uh, there's got to be a way. Well, and the interesting thing too, Boyd, in, in my opinion, and this really is opinion, I try to report very straightforwardly, but my opinion is that we have to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse, not just among the poor, but among all programs. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely. shouldn't just target the poor and say, you're not worthy. Why do you need help? We can't, we can't see individual lives clearly enough to tell the worthy poor versus the unworthy. Um, but if that's our standard, why don't we look then at the worthy corporation versus the unworthy or whatever? I just think that we need to to try to figure things out in a way that takes individual situations into account. Yeah, so important. I uh, I often got in trouble for saying that if we really wanted to talk about welfare reform, we needed to talk about corporate welfare <laughs> reform, uh, <laughs> that it's not just uh, those dealing with poverty that we need to work on reform. So great insight, as always. Uh, Lois Collins from the Deseret News, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Boyd. All right. Uh, great insight, as always, from Lois. Uh, you can read her piece on Deseret.com. And this is it's a question we've got to keep coming back to because we have to figure out how to do it better uh, to help people have an upward path uh, to get rid of the waste, fraud, and abuse, as we discussed, both for corporate welfare as well as for other welfare programs. Let's make sure we're measuring and finding out what actually works. Stay with us. A big th- announcement coming up. A chance for you to win some Garth Brooks tickets coming up next. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.